0: We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I'd like you to look at Mark chapter 9 that uh, Charlie read to you. And this is a very interesting section of Mark coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, telling them that uh, they are to speak to no one, And 9 verse 9, until he is raised from the dead, because then there will be a completed message of the coming death resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ is not just to amuse people, he is to save them. And so you will not speak until this work of God is finished. And as they were coming down the mountain, in verse 9, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And in verse 10, they seized upon, or literally, the Greek says, they kept to themselves that statement discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They're just kind of huddled up, these three men, and they're just talking among themselves. What did he mean by this? Rise from the dead, they might have said, did he mean on the last day? that all the Jews knew that on the last day that there will be a resurrection. Or if he's going to rise from the dead, then let me ask you, why does he have to die if he's just going to rise? And so you can see that there are questions that are buzzing around their ears right here. And in verse 11, they ask him, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Meaning, I thought Elijah, so the scribe said, that Elijah was going to appear before Messiah came. But we did not see him before Messiah came. We saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Malachi says that that he and Messiah would restore all things. We didn't see him come, Elijah, and we don't see a restoration of all things. We see the fact that you're going to die and somehow rise from the dead. Now, the text he's, they're talking about, I want you to look at it. If you'll just go back to your left to Malachi, the very last book of your Old Testament, the very last chapter, the very last two verses, this is how the Old Testament signs off, waiting for the coming of Messiah. He says in chapter 4 and verse 5, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, the tribulation and judgment. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. He's going to bring about repentance so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That you're going to see Elijah, then you're going to see Messiah following him, then you're going to see uh, restoration, lest I smite the earth with a curse. And so they ask this question, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They're in verse 11. You see, they have dots of facts that don't connect. Elijah is supposed to come. Then Messiah is supposed to come. And then a restoration of all things. But he's going to die? Elijah, Christ, kingdom, death, they're like these flies buzzing. Now, you and I have no problem with that. Elijah came, typically in the person of John the Baptist, Christ followed was rejected, will die, will rise, will return, and bring his kingdom. You and I, with New Testament enlightenment, have no problem. But when you're these men, you have these questions. And so in verse 12, Jesus reaffirms, Elijah does first come and restore all things. So he says, yes, men, the scribes are right. Elijah must come. And Christ who follows, they're going to restore all things. They're going to bring in the kingdom. And yet, in verse 12, And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He said, gentlemen, do you notice you kind of passed over this in your Bible study? Can we tend to do this in our Bible study? We look at stuff that we like and we skip over the stuff we don't like. And so he says, yes, Messiah will come, like the scribe said. And Messiah, I'm sorry, Elijah will come and Messiah will come. But how is it also written that he will suffer and be treated with contempt? That he will be rejected by the nation? And he says, this is written. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 11, Zechariah 14. We can be selective over verses we like and verses we don't like. And so they had not considered these, that Messiah has to die. And in verse 13, I say to you, Not only is Elijah going to come, Elijah has indeed come. Christ puzzles them more. You're saying Elijah didn't come. He did come. And they did to him whatever they wished. Jesus saw the prophecy of Malachi, of Elijah's coming, as fulfilled in John the Baptist. Not literally, but typically. As a matter of fact, let me show you something. If you'll look at Luke in chapter 1, over to your right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, just look at chapter 1, whenever Gabriel is announcing to Mary, the virgin birth of our Lord, it says that in verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb and turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, those are the words of Gabriel that John the Baptist will go in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then he connects it to that Malachi 4 or 5 text to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. The disobedient to the attitude of the right, of the righteous, so as to make a people ready for the Lord. Never argue with an angel's interpretation of prophecy. He says, "Elijah's coming in the person of John the Baptist." Now, in what sense was John the Baptist and Elijah? Were they typical of each other? Well, they lived alike. They were austere. They lived on the east of the Jordan. They look alike. They wear camel's hair. They ate alike, locust and wild honey. They preached alike, calling the nation back to repentance and to the attitude of the righteous, restoring sons to their fathers and fathers to the sons, preparing a people for the way of the Lord. And they were hated alike there was a particular couple that Elijah got cross of. It was a king named Ahab, and he had a wife named Jezebel. And Jezebel said, may the gods do so to me if your head is on your shoulders by this time tomorrow. And Elijah took off to Mount Sinai. And so they wanted him dead Because he had invoked the judgment of God against this royal couple. Who else would be bold enough to do that? John the Baptist got cross of a couple. A man who called himself the king of the Jews. His name was Herod. And he had a wife named Herodias. And because of the things that he said against them, Herodias said, I want his head on a platter. And Jesus said in verse 13, they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So it is written, boys, of Messiah that he will suffer and be treated with contempt. Did you read that, boys? No, I believe I missed that. And it's also written... Of Elijah, that he's already come in the person of John the Baptist, and he also is going to suffer and die. Did you get that, boys? Yes. In other words, Elijah was rejected, John was rejected, I will be rejected. You If you follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. You're going to be rejected. And then he said, if anyone comes after me, they're going to have to take up their cross and be rejected. Elijah, John, me, you, you. Death is going to precede life. And so this is a part of the section of of Mark that you call intimate conversations. They are little conversations to the side that Jesus has in the quiet with these men. And this is one of them. That boys, death precedes life. Now this is something that's kind of odd and puzzling and comforting and scaring at the same time. In the Garden of Eden, you have creation, you have life, but then you have the fall, and then you have recreation and salvation that is greater than Eden. You have man that is the very son of God by creation, then you have him as the son of the devil, and then you have restoration where he now looks upon the face of God. Creation, fall, resurrection. Resurrection. You have Israel, the covenant nation, the conquerors of the land. Then you have them worshiping idols, and they are dispersed. They will be regathered under Messiah and become the joy of the whole world. You have the world that was created a glory. Then you see the curse, and someday you will see new heavens and new earth. Even in Jesus, you see him come in power, be rejected and killed and rise and glory, and all things will be put under his feet. And even in God, in the Garden of Eden, you see attributes of God, power, wisdom, benevolence. But there are certain attributes that you don't see because they have not been pressed. What would he do if man rebelled? What would he do? And now you see the prophecy of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the grace of God. And in Revelation 5, all creation sings. Worthy is the Lamb. Even in God, there is glory, death, and resurrection. And, you ready? In you and in me, we see our salvation and our rebirth. And now, we die daily. Now, in this earthly tent, we groan. Anybody have any idea what I just quoted right there? In this earthly tent, we groan. When you go down to tie your shoe and you stay there in case there's anything else you need to do (laughs) while you're down there. Uh, Paul said, uh, "Oh, what was it? Our light affliction, which is just for a moment, worketh for a far greater and exceeding weight of glory. Now we are in the process of dying. And we learn that my mind isn't strong enough, I need his word. My will isn't strong enough, I need prayer and I need his grace. My way is not correct enough. I need his guidance. My life is not big enough. I need to build mine on him. That we die daily. Have you all discovered this? When we became Christians, all of us saw God usually just as a genie of all the great things he was going to do for us. And then he began breaking us down to refinish us, taking us apart and putting us back together again. Oh, but you ought to see the final thing in the eternal state uh, where there's no mourning, nor crying, nor death, nor pain, and they shall reign forever. And so that's our final estate. And so this is a intimate conversation that Jesus has with his men. Has he had that conversation with you? I've had to have this with him a number of times. He does all the talking. But it usually comes in the area of why, God? Why? Because you're going to trust me. And you're going to rest in me. And I'm going to be your all in all. And you're not there yet. But I'm going to bring you there. You're going to walk with me in the valley of this shadow. And so that's the quest of the Christian. Well, in verse 14, as they come down the mountain, they come to find something. They came back to the disciples and saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. The nine guys that didn't go up the mountain, he comes back and he finds an argument of Jews chiding the apostles for their failure in casting out a demon. That you see great glory on the mountain, and then you come down into the valley into this mess. And in verse 15, the entire crowd saw him and they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? greek word is dialogue what are you guys dialoguing about back and forth and arguing well verse 17 one of the crowd answered him teacher i brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute and it seizes him and slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out and i told your disciples to cast it out and they could not you notice Someone in the crowd answered. One of the crowd answered because the disciples are too embarrassed. What are y'all talking about? Well, we failed miserably on this guy and now the scribes are getting on us and we're arguing with them. None of the scribes answer because they're ashamed. So somebody in the crowd tattles. Here's what happened. We had this guy, we had this kid, we brought him and your guys went through all their hocus and pocus Oh, even. Yep. Didn't work. And so now, in verse 19, and Jesus answered, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Don't soften it. That's a rebuke to the disciples. And Isaiah 63, in verse uh, 8 through 10, the same words are spoken to the unbelieving Jews of Isaiah's day. Jesus uses it to speak to the entire future community of unbelief. One commentator said, how long could Christ put up with such incompetence? Bring him to me. And in verse 20, they brought the boy, and when he saw Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. The book of Matthew throws a different light on it. The father said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. I said, I've said that. A lot of us had. Have mercy on my son. He's a lunatic. The word in English, lunatic, is the same as in Greek. Lunar means the moon, that it was felt that epilepsy would occur at darkness. It's kind of a superstition, but that's when they thought it would come at darkness. And the Greek word is the root word, the word selene, which means the moon. He is moonstruck. Up on the mountain, you had a child in the light, the only begotten son. Down here, Matthew says, have mercy on my son, my only son. We've got another only begotten son. One's in the light, and one is in the dark. One's a child of the light, and one is a child of the dark. One God speaks, and this one Satan speaks. So you see now why the disciples wanted to stay up on that mountain. Because when you come down, man, you come down into a war zone. Would you agree? When you come out of church, when you go out in the streets, you're in a war zone. And so this demon sees Jesus. And one commentator said, the spirit betrayed his malicious intent to destroy the child and of his contempt for Jesus. Those are two things Satan does well. Hold God in contempt and to destroy his creation. And so he does. Jesus in verse 21 shows compassion. How long has this been happening to him? He said from childhood. It is often thrown him both under the fire and the water to destroy him, meaning he doesn't just want to torment the child, he wants to kill him. And he said, "If you can do anything, take pity and help us." This father, has, he has pain, he has heartache that has gone a lifetime, and his faith is weak. And so he says in 22. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Verse 23 is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus becomes sarcastic with somebody. If you can, you can just hear him saying, is that what I heard you say? If you can, all things are possible to him who he believes. Another great commentator said this there are spiritual facts that this man has to learn. If you can, it's as if he says, I'm not the one in question if I can. That's not a question. The question is you. All things are possible through him or in him who believes. You have got to answer that question, not me. Incidentally, that phrase, nothing is impossible with God, uh, let's see, yeah, all things are possible to him who believes, that is quoted 12 times in the Bible. God said to a man who was 100 years old that he was going to have a kid. And the man said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, nothing is impossible with God. Who's the man we're talking about? Abraham. God told Moses to feed the multitude of Israel. Moses said, shall I pull up all the fish of the sea? And God said, nothing is impossible with God. God told Jeremiah to buy some land just before they go into exile. Because I'm going to bring you back. And he said, Ah, oh, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and thine outstretched arm. Is anything impossible for thee? A guy named Zerubbabel is trying to rebuild the temple. And it's difficult. And God speaks through Zechariah to Zerubbabel and says, Is anything impossible with God? Uh, Mary is told by Gabriel you're gonna have a child. How can I i have never known a man? Nothing is impossible with God. This man here, his life, he loves this child and it's destroyed. Ever been there? Nothing is impossible with God. And after this, Jesus is gonna go away with these men. He's going to have a conversation with them. And they're going to say the great question that all the church has to ask in the light of failure. Why could we not cast this out? Jesus said, the reason, your faith is little and you don't pray. If you had faith like a mustard seed, you'd say to a mountain, symbolic of a kingdom, be cast into the sea and it would obey you. This kind comes out by prayer. Nothing is impossible with God. Paul paraphrases it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is not a blanket prayer that God has to be our genie, but it's the idea that nothing lies between us and any possibility but the power and the pleasure of God that he's there. And if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, there is a wise reason, but God can do anything. And so, all things are possible to him who believes. And this man, I love him. I don't know who he is, but I look at that response and I've said this. You ever prayed this? I do believe. Help my unbelief. I've prayed that a hundred times. God, on paper, I believe. Now, help my soul because I need the strength to trust in you. One guy has said that the Christian life is like going out on a frozen lake that has about eight feet of ice frozen under it that you could drive out a semi on it and it would hold. And the Christian is crawling and weeping, fingernail by fingernail, going out there because he's terrified. And if he only knew what is beneath him. I believe, help my unbelief. And in 25, Jesus saw a crowd was rapidly gathering. He rebuked the unclean spirit. One word. You deaf, mute spirit, I command you, come out and don't enter him again. You ever seen Matt Dillon throw a drunk out of a long branch? (laughs) Man, he is thawed and he ain't coming back. And that is the power. If he is pleased to act, that is his power. And he is gone and he will not return. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said that he is dead. The demon did all the harm that he could. And now, just like with Jairus' daughter in verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up and got up. He gives it back to his father. The Bible says that Messiah... And John the Baptist would restore the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children of the fathers. I can heal, take him back. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him, what's your word, privately. Title of this sermon is called Intimate Discussions. We have had an intimate discussion about a cross. That John has to die and I have to die and you have to die and they have to die. Yeah. That it's going to be a difficult time. That's why, incidentally, don't get so upset by Canaanite News Network. All right. <laughs> don't get upset by Fox. Don't get upset by CNBC. Don't get upset why, what what... Uh, Argentina's doing, China's doing, North Korea's doing, what Russia's doing, what everybody's doing. Don't get that up, get overwrought by cultural Marxism, the critical race theory, the woke idea. Uh, Man has been a perverse and crooked generation for a long time. Uh, God called Israel crooked, perverse generation. You're crooked, you're disobedience to God. And you're perverted. Simon Peter told them to be saved out of this crooked, perverse generation. Paul said, hold forth the word of life to which you shine in the midst of a crooked, perverse generation like stars in the night. And so Christians have always been saved out of a world full of crooks that are disobedient to God, and then their activities become perverse. Uh, We're in far better shape than the Roman Empire when Paul was here. So when you go out there and see craziness, what did you expect with the children of darkness who despise, loathe, and hate the notion of Yahweh? And so you just circle up and come in tight and love each other, keep hanging strong, preach to it and go out and do sorties into it and then return. But this is a crooked, perverse generation. You know, my president of my seminary said, You know, I always knew this world was sliding down. He said, I didn't think it would happen in a weekend. <laughs> I said, I know what you mean. Well, Now they ask this question in verse 28 that has to be asked by all the people of God. They came into the house, and the disciples became questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? Why on the mountain is there power, and in the valley there was weakness? And Jesus said, now to look at this. I want you to flip to Matthew 17. Just go back to your left. And Matthew 17, it's a little bit more red print here. And this is all part of the training of the 12. Verse 20, because of the littleness of your faith, Truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that's a little speck of pepper, it's tiny, then you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. A mountain, in biblical terminology, represents a kingdom that is mighty. The kingdom of God is seen as the mountain of God. Uh... This is a phrase that is quoted from the book of Zechariah. Whenever Zerubbabel was trying to build the temple of God, but there was a mountain in his way. It was called the Persian government. that issued an edict for 14 years that you will not touch that temple anymore. It's done. And they gave up. And God said to Zechariah, say this to Zerubbabel. Who despises the day of small things? Will not these eyes of God be delighted when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel and you back to work? Say this to Zerubbabel, and you've all memorized this, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Son, you get back to work and say this to Zerubbabel, I will take this mountain and I will make it a plain. P-L-A-I-N. I'm going to make the mountain disappear. I'm going to toss it in the sea. And God so affected that Persian government that they reversed their stance. They gave Israel a carte blanche. They paid for it. And they said, anybody that ever opposes what these Jews are doing to build the house of God, we're going to take a timber from his house and we're going to impale you on it. Now, do you think you can keep your hands off these Jews now? and God did a complete turnaround. And that's the text that Christ quotes because the disciples came down the mountain and they have run into a mountain. It was the mountain of Satan. And they, why could we cast it out? He says in verse 21, this verse 21 in the book of Matthew is arguably not there. It is no doubt there in the book of Mark. This is what evidences great faith. This kind does not come out except by prayer. This kind, I take it there are levels of the demonic uh, regency. There are those in the presence of God that accuse the saints. There are those that are over countries, we know from the book of Daniel. And there are those, I guess they're first lieutenant demons that take the lives of men and possess and destroy men or attempt to. And he said, this kind, you can't do anything against it, but I can. And it comes out by prayer. Now, how did he mean that? This is not the first time that the disciples faced the demonic. Keep your finger there and go to Matthew 10. When he sent them out two by two, though they probably wouldn't have gone one by one, when he sent them out two by two, and he told them in verse 1, he summoned the 12, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every kind of disease. He gives them power. And then in verse 5, Don't go the way of the Gentiles or Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, tell them the king has come. Verse 8, You heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. And don't you accept money. Freely you receive, freely give. You're going to be like priests and Levites. You don't charge a nine and acquire gold, silver, copper. Even ten, you don't even take a bag for your journey. Don't take two coats. Because the worker is worthy of his support. That's how the Levites and the priests were taken care of by the people. Jesus is saying, we're having a brand new order of leaders. And it's you. You're going to be taken care of. When you enter a city, in verse 11, go into the house that opens the door, and don't think that you have to leave there. You stay there. And if the house is worthy in 13... Just as God blessed those that helped Elijah and Elisha, I will bless those that help you. As God blessed those that helped David, I'll bless those who help you. Because you are a new order of leaders. You are a new priesthood, boys. Now you get out there and do it. Because in verse 14 and 15, they reject you, they reject me, and they would be better off at Sodom and Gomorrah. Now do you think that's a little bit of a pep talk right there? I'll guarantee you. And they went out in the power of God's spirit and called out upon him. And they saw things happen. Back to chapter 17. Time has passed. They have just been told, I'm going to take the kingdom away from them. and give it to you. You're going to have the keys of the kingdom. I'm going to let you see Moses and Elijah, glorified Christ. God's going to speak. We're going to come down the mountain. And while they're down there, these guys who have now uh, taken on kind of a new confidence, they got the pajabers beaten out of them. Listen to this. One of my seminary profs wrote this, Lou Barbieri. The point was that the exercising of a demon was not something that the disciples could automatically assume would happen because of past performance. There must be prayerful dependence on the power of God. The disciples had trusted In the quasi magical power with which they thought themselves invested. There had been, on their part, no particular preparation of heart and spirit. This, apparently, the disciples had failed to do. Were they drawing on past successes and attempting to perform the exorcism and their own strength? It was clear from the Savior's response that they were not prayerfully depending on God for his power to be exercised in this case. This can happen to ministers, and this can happen to churches. Whenever you fail to see what is called the deep magic, C.S. Lewis said, The gospel of Christ is not a ritual, it's not a set of moral rules, it is deep magic it is god the trinity providing the second person to become one of us his willful rejection torture and crucifixion on a cross a world of sin laid on him rising from the dead and conquering satan ascending to the father's right hand and all authority given to him And by the third person of the Trinity, his life being placed in his elect. And them being gifted to go out and work. And they work by prayer and invoking the name of God. They see souls fall by preaching the word of God and trusting the sovereignty of God and praising God for his hope. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me and I in you. And you shall bear much fruit. And C.S. Lewis called that the deep magic. And that's where a Christian church has to rest in. Of what God can do. And the way that you can tell. Is that they pray. They pray. You know it's interesting. That there have been three great revivals. In America. In about 1720 to 1740 there was the first great awakening and it occurred on the response of great prayer and the reason there was prayer is that first generation of Puritans and pilgrims had died and the 1600s had ended in the Salem witch trials and there had become deism that had gotten into Harvard and the uh, the coming French Enlightenment and rationalism had gotten into American thinkers because our colleges were back in England. And slowly and surely, worldliness began to overtake the colonies. And they began to pray. And it started with high school students. And it converted a tenth of the American population. And then you didn't see another one until the early 1800s. When that generation had passed and now America began to press to the west and now there was land to be had and as we started breaking away more and more from England and becoming our own people that slowly and surely uh, a lot of crazy ideas got into America and Harvard and in Yale the students would nickname themselves Voltaire and Rousseau and atheism was beginning and man was putting now his potential, his freedom—that he could be his own landed gentry—now. And uh, as a result, drunkenness, uh, all kind of stuff, took over in America. And you had now the second great awakening began at Hampton sydney College in Virginia. There was a boy named Carrie Lewis. It was this school wild man that got converted and started a prayer group in his room, and it said they carried on like Methodists, (laughs) praying out loud. And that started the second great awakening known as the camp meeting where all the guys would come together and have preaching. And then you had another generation until 1858. Were there some things happening in 1858 in our country that made you nervous? We were about to kill each other over the issue of slavery and secession. And the Industrial Revolution had come in. We were no longer a rural nation. We were a group of city dwellers. And now you started having machines and factories and the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. And out of that came nascent communism, 1845. Karl Marx, over the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth. And there started being great problems and gangs and violence in the cities. And there was a guy in New York whose name was Jeremiah Calvin Lanfear. And he was watching what was happening, the godlessness of America, to where American virtue was a thing of the past, of memory. That's all it was. And his church hired him. It was a church in New York, Fulton Street, Dutch Reformed Church, to try to bring evangelism into the church. And he did it like a layman. He was a businessman. He printed out 2,000 handbills that said, we're going to have a prayer meeting Monday, 12 o'clock, Fulton Street, Dutch Reformed Church. Come and pray for the needs of our country. Handed out 2,000 handbills. He just said, let's pray. Six people showed up. And he said, well, I guess we'll pray. And then he said, does anybody know how to do that? They weren't sure. He said, tell what? You write down your needs, and I'll read them, and I'll have somebody pray. Good idea. And they wrote them down. There's a lady here whose husband is dissolute and given himself to evil spirits. He is a wine-bibber. Would anyone like to pray? I will. I will. Okay, I pray for my worthless husband. Yes, yes. Amen. Let us pray for the state of our country that looks like it is coming close to warfare. If things do not happen, would anyone like to pray for this? I have a son. I'd like to pray. Father, I pray for this country. And he would pray. Here's another one, and they prayed for an hour, and they said that was fun. And do it again next week? Do it again next week. 24 people came. And he was the moderator. His name was Jeremiah Calvin Lanfear. Pass in your needs. And he would read them. I have a son who has wandered. And I do not know where he is. God does. Who would like to pray for this? I have a son too. Let's pray. Father, we pray for this lady. Thank you. Right here. I have a next door neighbor that throws her garbage over in my front yard. I'm contemplating on killing her, but I see that this would be fine. Who would like to pray for this? Father, we pray for this woman. Yes, thank you. And they had a lot of fun. That was really good. They do it again next week. And they had 50 people show up. And pretty soon they had 200 people show up. And pretty soon they had the entire church filled. And to make a long story short... Pretty soon in New York they started ringing the bells of the churches at 12 o'clock for people to turn out and go to places of prayer. And all of New York began praying at 12 o'clock for what was coming. And then whenever New York does something, Boston says, we got to do it too. Start praying in Boston every day or at 12 o'clock that the drum, the bells would ring. And then Philadelphia said, we've sure got to do it. Philadelphia began doing it. And it spread all over the country. Noon prayer meetings. And what came out of that uh, was the volunteer student movement of the missions movement. It spread all through the country. It went even into England of the layman's prayer revival. My point is that these revivals all began spontaneously out of fear of people seeing what was happening, that we, it's beyond us now. It's beyond us. Nobody really organized it. They just prayed because they were scared. It was a nation and a foxhole, and they prayed. Jesus said, this kind does not come out except by prayer. I would dare you, To try something. Why don't you dare to draw near? You know, that's how this church was started. I had lost my church. I was in a Methodist church. Mel had just gotten kicked out of his Methodist church. We owe liberal Methodism for Denton Bible. And uh, me and a bunch of guys, I didn't have a job anymore. Liberalism had taken over. So me and a bunch of guys, Joe Getz, Mark Jensen, Johnny Jones, Bob Peters. We all went to Putt-Putt Golf because we didn't have a church to go to. So we all went to Putt-Putt. And then we went over to Joe's house on Alice Avenue. Single man's house. There was no furniture. We all laid down and they said, what have you been learning at seminary? I said, I've had a class on evangelism and revivalism. And I told them about the layman's prayer revival. And they said in unison, We ought to do that. And so we began praying every Sunday night from 7 o'clock to 8. We would lay on the rug and we would pray. Pretty soon I ran into a guy named Mel Summerall. He said, why don't you come over to our church? I did. Pretty soon their guys started coming. We packed out the house. Pretty soon the girls wanted to pray. Uh, Men and women don't pray together. And so they went to their own house. Okay. Sometimes we'd go over and sing carols to them. All right. And they would go pray. In their house. And so we began praying. On Sunday nights. And that was how Denton Bible started. We still pray now on the first Thursday. Of every month. We still carry on that prayer. One time I almost quit the ministry. Back in. About 1984. I had just. Discipled men. Built them up. Taught them all that they taught me at seminary. They didn't have the same passions that I had. And it fell over. And I said, if I ain't no better than this, shoot, I need to quit. I'll go to Decatur and coach football, make big money. (laughs) And I almost quit. Long story short, God said, why don't you pray? And so I began to pray. I mean, I said, I'm going to take you, God, to task. It's going to be me and you. So I took a red notebook of a conference I'd been at. And I took all the papers that were at the conference and threw them away. And then I got some typing paper and punched three holes in it, and it made me a notebook. I took a pen, threw a line down the middle, and I put March 15th, 1985. And I began to pray for all the things I wanted to pray for. The next day, I put March or May 16th, 1985, and I prayed for everything that day and the previous things. And I said, I'm not going to quit praying until you say yes, no, or later. It's me and you, and I'm going to find out about prayer. And I can trace Denton Bible from that time, right there, in prayer. This church got formed out of prayer. How do you organize it? You don't. You'll kill it. You do it. I double dog dare you to close your closet, like Jesus said. And you write it down. My husband's attitude. My husband's breath. My husband's, he said going down the list. All right. Turn the page. My husband's this. You just pray. My children, My whatever. And I'm going to pray for this amount of time. And then I'm done. And God, I'm going, to, I'm going to keep coming. And I'm going to keep coming until I wear you out. And I'm going to find out about prayer guy wrote a book on it one time simply called Daring to Draw Near. I dare you. See what God Almighty can do. Father, this is the uh, conversation you had with some very discouraged men. Why could we not cast it out? Because you can't do anything. I can do all things. Why don't you learn to pray? Lord, times are desperate. You're a God who does his best work in desperation. Amen.